Welcome to Artipus. It's been a while. This is a comeback episode. I stopped producing Artipus at the beginning of 2020 and thought I had said goodbye. But, you know, in the three years following, I really missed it. So I'm bringing it back. Hello again. If you're already familiar with this show, welcome back. If you're new here, Artipus tells stories about art, kind of like The Moth Meets the Met, or The Guggenheim, or The Louvre, or even graffiti on a street corner sometimes. I love art. I love the way it can make me feel, sometimes taking me into myself, sometimes connecting me to the world. Artipus is the bridge between. I'm Susie Colick, and in this comeback episode, Artipus visits Motherland, Ukrainian artists reflect on the notion of homeland at the Stadtmuseum Berlin. The exhibition explores the notion of home from the literal and local all the way to the global and abstract idea of home, where it is, what it feels like, and what happens when you lose it or when someone tries to take it from you. I'm recording this episode on the 505th day of Russia's war on Ukraine. In the six years I lived in Paris, my youngest brother came to visit me three times. At the time, he was a pilot for a commercial airline, so it was easy enough for him to use his flight benefits to pop over for a visit. He usually arranged his trips around sporting events. My youngest brother is a huge sports fan, the kind of guy who knows everything about all the sports. His first visit to Paris was for the French Open, a lovely day at Roland Garros Park watching Roger Federer play. But his second trip was more exciting. His second trip was in 2012 for the UEFA European Cup. Soccer, y'all. That year, the Euro Cup games had been granted to host countries Poland and Ukraine. We were supporting the German team, and my brother felt it was a good chance to visit a country he's never been to before. So we chose the Germany versus Denmark game in the city of Lviv, and off we went to Ukraine. We flew into Warsaw and took a train to the Poland-Ukraine border. The train station on the Poland side at Chemyshevuvne is an airy and bright space constructed in the 1860s. It was quiet the day we arrived, and such a weird feeling 10 years later to recognize the same station on news broadcasts, to have that excited little jump of recognition in your gut when you see a place you're familiar with. Hey, I've been there. While your heart is breaking at the sheer amount of people piling into that very same train station trying to escape a war. When we were there, we met a couple of Germans on the train who were also on their way to Ukraine. They had a lot of experience getting in and out of Lviv because one of them had been making regular trips to visit a young woman he was in love with. Love will make you travel long distances and through all kinds of barriers just to get where your heart is. The German guys told us that the best way to get from the Polish-Ukraine border to Lviv was to take a taxi. At that time, a taxi would have cost us about 20 euro. My brother, however, wanted to go a cheaper route and use one of the minibuses readily available to take the locals returning to Lviv and the areas surrounding it. It only cost about 2 euros, so that's what we did. We piled into a minibus, and I was able to claim a seat. And then we idled in the parking lot for a while, waiting for more people to board. The bus became increasingly crowded. I became a piece of furniture that babushka'd Ukrainian grandmothers parked their baggage on like I was a coffee table or a bench, something my brother found hysterically funny. After a squashed and ignoble ride, we finally made it into the town of Lviv. 
Lviv is a beautiful place. The Habsburgian architecture, the cobblestone streets, it seemed sophisticated and well-educated, well-formed. You could kind of understand why it would be the seat of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, because it's just so elegant. Our apartment, however, was a little more, or less, than we bargained for. The foyer entry was dirt. The stairs leading up to the first floor were dilapidated and falling apart. There was a hole in the wooden landing on the way to our apartment front door, and at night it was pitch black. Incredibly treacherous, especially after a couple of beers. The apartment itself was fine, stable, clean, serviceable for our needs. It was just getting there that was an adventure. Much like the recent history of Ukraine into an independent state. Last week, that entire street in Lviv was destroyed by Russian bombs. The Stadtmuseum in Berlin is located in the Museum Ephraim Palais in Berlin's Nikolaiviertel, one of the two settlements that made up the original city center, sort of the birthplace of Berlin, both being destroyed in the Battle of Berlin and rebuilt after World War II. The building is a reconstruction of a Rococo-style palace originally built on that location in 1766, rebuilt in 1987, when Germany was starting to recover economically from World War II and was going through a period of restoration, and in everything new is old again kind of way. The exhibition is up a flight of stairs and occupies the entire floor, a central salon with rooms accordioning out to each side of it. When you enter the central salon, you are greeted by a large format abstract painting of three soldiers in a battlefield. Soldiers who are just hanging out in between battles, smoking, playing cards, almost Norman Rockwell-like, it's so wholesome, except that their faces are pixelated. Titled A Moment of Silence, the artist Lysia Komenko was inspired by all the battlefield selfies, the TikToks, the Instagram reels, the tweets, the Facebook posts, the telegrams, the digital world that has now fully blended into the analog world and has become just as much a part of warfare as bombs and guns and tanks. This is the new face of war, pixelated to hide location details and identities, but clear with voices and personalities and eyes full of tears or joy, broadcasting from Bucha, from bomb shelters in Kyiv, from flooded fields in the middle of Ukraine. Standing in front of the painting, you have a choice. You can go to the left or you can go to the right through a series of successive rooms on either side. And each side has its own theme, so it's kind of a choose-your-own-adventure, although each adventure ends in a dead end. Our first day in Lviv, my brother and I went to lunch a little later than lunch hour, so we were the only two people in the restaurant we chose besides two young men in their early 20s. They were sporting sunglasses and looking like little kings of the world. They overheard us speaking English and joined our conversation. When they learned we were American, they asked, how are you finding Ukraine so far? We had literally just arrived, so we told them we didn't know. They said specifically to me, you need to be careful here. Women aren't treated in the same way as they are in Western Europe and in America. And then they removed their sunglasses to reveal what we call in the U.S. a shiner. We got these last night, said one of them. We had a casual conversation with a woman at a bar. Her boyfriend accused us of hitting on her and then punched us. I said, are you Ukrainian? No, we're from Lithuania, but we all speak Russian. From the central salon, I chose to go to the right. 
The first room is dominated by an installation of what looks like an old civil servant's desk, some newspaper clippings pinned to the wall, along with some photographs. On the desk, an array of papers, an old computer, the flotsam and jetsam of civil work. Artist Nikolai Karabinovich calls this, there has been a terrible mistake. It is a simulation of a fictional politician, one who doesn't actually exist. But it's a mock-up in a sense of a politician who has benefited under a dominant and oppressive rule and then mysteriously falls out of a window or goes missing. This part of the exhibition doesn't really resonate with me, maybe because the politicians in my home country and in my adopted country, while just as foolish, tend not to fall out of windows so much. They just get public speaking gigs, which I guess for some people is torture. On the floor, leaning against the desk, is a small painting of a woman in a babushka. She's one of the women crammed into that little minibus with me all those years ago in Lviv. I recognized her immediately and thought, haha, so the tables have been turned. But what was she doing on the floor? The room reminds me a little bit of the KGB museum in Vilnius, Lithuania, a country that was also under Soviet rule until 1991, who also had politicians that played both sides of the game, and I'm sure its fair share of politicians who fell out of windows. Definitely the same collection of Soviet-era desks and accoutrements for pushing papers. The room opens into the middle room of this series of three on the right side wing. The works in this room are black. They're large print photos of political demonstrations in Berlin, where most of the buildings and the people have been almost completely blacked out until they're only shadows, leaving the only thing remaining the political slogans they hold up in protest. Artist Yuri Biele uses charcoal to blacken out these photos from German post-war photographer Ralph Goetze of the May demonstrations against the Soviet presence during the Cold War period. Every sign that mentions Berlin has been changed to the name of a Ukrainian city, but as Bile calls this series, Freedom for All, he points out that the value of these words also depends on you. You the viewer, you the citizen, you the politician, too. I really like this series, their somberness that is both high drama and sober mourning. Some of the photos hang on the wall, some of the photos are displayed in flat glass cases. It's as though you're surrounded by black tombstones, almost monoliths, like the monolith from 2001 A Space Odyssey that only appears at moments of great change. But maybe because of their blackness, or because of their sharp rectangular forms, they also remind me of open graves. The room feels like a memorial. Well, it feels like death. But the series itself is really wonderful. I really love the idea of receding the buildings and the people and the energy of protest into the background and bringing forth only the slogan, making a point of the power of propaganda and the importance of slogans to rally around. Slogans that live on to this day, even though many of the people in these photos are probably dead and the wall has fallen, and the Soviets have left East Berlin. Or have they? In Lviv, someone told us about a place called the Partisan Bar, which my brother and I were keen to check out. Me, especially for my revolutionary heart. I'm not really sure what my brother's motivation was. The bar was a cellar bar, a few steps below street level, and quite cavey. Definitely felt like the kind of place where an underground resistance movement would headquarter. There were rifles on the walls that you could take off and pose with for pictures, and there were always Ukrainians in the bar, drunk and singing partisan songs. It was a rowdy and earthy place, but also with what felt like an undercurrent of violence. We liked it, 
but we were also uncomfortable from it. We were horrified by the amount of guns and their accessibility, especially in a place that served lots of alcohol. Remember, this is 2012, when mass shootings were not yet a daily part of American life. The center room from this right side wing flows into the final room, and it's a room full of light. It is again dominated by a large painting, this one by Katarina Lizovenko, simply called The End. Here again are our three soldiers, just hanging out. But this time the painting is very light, mostly white, pastels, neutral tones. It's not exactly ghostly as it is heavenly, the forms of the soldiers almost dissipating into the light itself, as though ascending to ethereal realms. It gives you the sense of overexposure, which is exactly how war kills everyone. Standing again in the central salon and looking through the succession of doors to my right, the rooms taken together are an illustration of political corruption, leading to political change that leads to war and then to death. But I find the journey through the rooms feels less political than the simple human experience. The commonalities of all of us working at desk jobs, engaging in political change, and then dying. Office, grave, heaven. My brother and I watched EuroCup matches on the fan mile in the center of Lviv, and we watched matches in our favorite courtyard cafe. Finally, the big day came for the Germany versus Denmark game. We packed onto buses full of rowdy football fans and drove in convoys through the cobblestone streets of Lviv on our way to the stadium just outside the city. One of the leaders of the German fan group stood on the pitch before the game and reminded the fans to behave themselves because soccer rowdiness had been getting out of control. They didn't. But the game was played well, and Germany won 2-1. to one. The Danes were good sports about it, and we ended up hanging out and getting rather wildly drunk with some of them, back at the partisan bar later that night. We also ran into a couple of young Ukrainian-Americans who were so nationalistic, so patriotic and passionate about being in Ukraine, and Ukraine as an independent country that they could barely speak about Ukraine without tears in their eyes. To my brother and I, this was foreign. We didn't share that kind of deep nationalism. Our family is a migrating family, and we're children of immigrants, first-generation kids from families rooted back in Germany on our dad's side and Sweden on our mom's. We only get nationalistic when it comes to international football, when we support the U.S. team if they make the cut, the German team by default, and the Swedish team for as long as they stay in the game. I crossed the central salon, passing by the three pixelated soldiers again, and gave them a little wave as I dove into the next three rooms, to the left of a moment of silence. The work in these rooms really highlight the presence of the digital world in the analog world, in the past and the future, and the continuum between the two. The first two things you see in the very first room are a small sculpture and a large painting. The small sculpture is a 3D print of a woman on all fours breastfeeding two wolf cubs. It's the self-portrait of the artist, Yulia Balieva, that she calls Capitoline Wolf. She is the mother, feeding the cubs who build the capital city. Not Rome, in this case, but Kiev, the heart of Kievan Rus. Kievan Rus was the name of the land that, at its most powerful in the mid-11th century, stretched from the White Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south, and from the headquarters of the Vistula in the west to the Taman Peninsula, Belarus, Russia, and Ukraine, all claimed Kievan Rus as their cultural ancestor. 
Reykjavn Rus was founded by river Vikings, a fascinating Viking branch who chose to use the riverways to go east into what's now Eastern Europe and the Middle East, as opposed to their seafaring brothers and sisters who headed west towards England, Scotland, Ireland, and Europe. Called Varangians, while they marauded, they were also passionate business people. Their purpose of invasion and land acquisition was a lot more focused on establishing trade routes and building alliances and basically creating international trade to spread out as far as they possibly could. The Varangian prince Rurik is credited with establishing Kievan Rus and his dynasty, seated in Kiev, ruled for about 400 years. The story goes that Vladimir Putin's views on Kievan Rus is that there was only one true descendant, the Russians, and therefore Ukraine is Russian, which justifies Russia's invasion of Ukraine both in 2014 and in 2022. He's just taking back his ancestral lands from thousands of years ago. Men are so crazy. I mean, let me just tell you something, Vlad. The Kievan Rus originated from the river Vikings, who came from modern-day Sweden, which means those are my people. So what if I were to claim my ancestral rights as a descendant of the mother of Rurik, hmm? And as the mother of Kievan Rus, what if I say, you have your own country, Vlad, stop bothering the Ukrainians and go home? Balieva's statuette is porcelain and fine, and it looks almost like something you would see on your grandmother's shelf if your grandmother was a kinky Berliner grandmother. It provides an interesting focal point to look out from under the large oil painting on the opposite wall. The painting is a colorful, fluid pieta by artist Alina Sokolova. Except in this pieta, it's dogs who cradle humans. These dogs are abstract, elongated, and they remind me of Edvard Munch's The Scream. The dogs aren't screaming, though. Only the humans are. It has an almost cartoon-like feel, but with uncomfortable colors, twisted lines, exaggerated faces of the dogs and the morphed figures of the humans that contain the agony and the horror and the pain of war. This is one of the first wars where the welfare of animals has come to the forefront. The question of animal welfare has been raised in the recent wars of the late 20th century, but never before has animal welfare been so front and center. From the animal rescue efforts currently happening all across Ukraine, to the animals recently drowned in the zoo at Kherson when the dam blew. Background, a two-part work by artist Anna Tsvagintseva, includes paper covered in tiny, repetitious marks Little blades of grass, depicted with a single line that make me think of Agnes Martin. The stillness of the work on paper mirrors the video work on the opposite wall, of green blades of grass that move in the wind and softly rustle in the sunshine. It's like an easy summer day, laying in the grass, video, thinking about grass, paper. But that's only something you can do when the background is peace, stability, and security. And that's not the background the artist is talking about. She's talking about the background of the battlefield, and those faint marks on paper might also be counting each minute of war. Across the room, on a large vertical screen, is an image of the future. The results of the aftermath of this war if Putin decides to utilize tactical nuclear warheads or, God forbid, his stupid megaton nuclear bomb. It's a dystopian video, using an avatar based on the artist Zenya Stepanenko's dad, who is actually an avid mushroom forager and who survived the Chernobyl nuclear catastrophe. In the video, he explains that the milk cap turns into a butterfly and the chanterelle turns into an earthworm. 
In this future, mushrooms are a commodity. They can help protect us from radiation, and they decarbonize the air. The screen is slightly larger than human size, so it feels as though you could actually walk into this post-apocalyptic world and go foraging for these precious mushrooms with the guide himself. Glass cases on either side of the screen display clothes, post-apocalyptic armor to protect humans in an over-radiated environment while foraging for more mushrooms. Mushrooms are the currency here. Mushrooms are the gold. It's a fascinating idea considering the world of mushrooms themselves. What is truly gold about them? Their ability to protect from radiation, decarbonize the air? Or is it their ability to create large networks that exist symbiotically with other forms of life, where everything can thrive? That would be the utopian message to take away, but that doesn't seem to be the focus of this current war. What the work does say, of course, is that humans, like mushrooms, are pretty resilient and find a way of figuring out how to survive even the worst situations. Whether that's good or bad is yet to be seen. As a host country for the European Cup, the Ukraine national team also played in the matches. They won their opener against Sweden 2-1, but then lost to France and, two nights after the Germany-Denmark game, lost to England. This was their knockout game. They would not be advancing to quarterfinals, semifinals, or the finals. That's always a hard fall for the team of the host country. But even though the Ukrainians lost their match and were out of the cup, all night long on the streets of Lviv, the Ukraine fans wandered around drunkenly, shouting Slav Ukraina. They were like car alarms that wouldn't stop going off. My brother and I were still nursing hangovers from two nights before, and we were longing for a quiet night's sleep, but it was impossible, interrupted all night long by shouts for Ukraine. I guess no matter win or lose, Ukrainians will always be Ukrainians. It's the one thing you can't take away from them. It's the blue and yellow flame of passion for who they are and where they come from, and that will never go out. For my brother and I, we were already done with the partying and the debauchery of the European Cup. We were ready to go home. The next room in this succession is dominated by a single CGI video that is broadcast under the entire wall. It is a simulation of a Russian soldier's body being eaten by dogs. Based on a real video shared on Telegram, the artist Yulia Believa returns to her theme of two dogs in this work titled Landscape with Two Puppies. In this landscape, the body is now a skeleton, the dogs look like 3D prints again, and in the background is a long-abandoned tank. The ground is white gravel. There is the same overexposure and the same sense of the ethereal as the painting of the dead soldiers and their ghosts at the end of the political journey on the other side of the exhibition space. The projection is so huge that you are also standing in this future reality, much like the post-apocalyptic future in the preceding room. And much like the installation in the preceding room, both stories of war end the same way. This landscape of puppies, though, feels as though you are standing in the far, far, far future, long after the war has been finished, and the only thing left are abandoned Russian tanks and soldier skeletons, and the dogs of war. 
Have you ever noticed that there are always survivors in post-apocalyptic worlds? The word has come to mean catastrophe, but the original meaning is revelation, a new perception of something so fundamental it creates profound change. If you remember 2012, it was also the year of the Mayan apocalypse, an event that, for some reason, really scared me. And the night of which the apocalypse was supposed to happen, I sat in a Paris cafe with a friend all night to make sure the world would, in fact, be there in the morning. What a testament to friendship, although a friendship that had turned toxic for both of us by the beginning of 2014, as so many things were turning toxic. Later that same year, in 2014, my brother returned to Paris for a visit, but this time, with no sporting event for us to share, we had difficulty finding things to talk about, and found ourselves instead deteriorating into bickering in the way that siblings do, even siblings in their 40s. At one point, our inability to find anything to talk about peaked, and my brother said in frustration, but I can't talk about art like you do. I don't know the names of artists. I can't speak about art history. I can't have long conversations about it like you can. And I thought, who is this guy? We were raised by the same art-loving mother, who dragged us to the same art museums, who made us look at the same art books. We even had some of the same art teachers in school. How is it that we were raised in the same environment, by the same mother, but we could be such different people? A few months after my brother visited, a small English-language radio station in Paris was launching and looking for new shows. I pitched the idea of stories about art in order to make art more accessible and less intimidating. I was thinking about my brother. The bridge of sports that we had previously used to communicate was no longer there. And the only other bridge I knew was art. Writers and artists need muses, and I'm no different. But I'm such a good writer, I actually needed two. <laughs> Just kidding. My dad was one muse, the person I told all my stories to. My brother was the other, the person I told them for. And that's how Artipus was born. If the landscape with puppies is an afterlife, a reflection or an alternate version of the afterlife on the political side of the exhibition space, this afterlife has an anteroom, a limbo. The final room in the left wing of the space explores what lies beneath, after war. A large painting by Katarina Alinik is called Double Cropland, examining a patch of earth below the surface that contains a human skull and the remains of a soldier's kit, like seeds that are planted deep in the earth and that sprout alongside grains and grasses, and all the things that grow and feed the earth and the things that live on the earth, the fertile soil that one day will grow new soldiers and new heroes, too. Almost like a sample of a Linux painting, Christina Melnick's sculpture on the other side of the room tells the same story. The bones will become a garden, depicts a human skull almost dissolved in the earth, the aftermath of war that sinks into the earth only to be dug up by later generations as crops and fodder coming from and feeding off of the motherland. My brother and I took care of our mother in the final year of her life. We did it together, and it bound us together. After she died, our bond was also a bond of grief. But grief doesn't always bond you, though. When our dad died in 2018, we drifted away from each other. 
still bound by name and blood and DNA, but now exploring entirely different tributaries of grief and loss, each for ourselves in the elasticity of being, when you're completely on your own and so far from home. It takes a couple of generations for a family to forget its roots, to forget that at one point it was migratory, to forget the first names of the ancestors who set up life in a new land. I don't remember the names of the ancient river Vikings who first set out from Sweden and settled to make the beginnings of Kievan Rus. Someday, I won't remember my grandparents' names. The new generations already don't know the names of their great-grandmothers. But we all enter the world through the same door, through our mother's bodies, the only real motherland there ever is. And even when that body is gone, we carry her DNA into the next generation and the next. But we forget as we go, we forget. So that even 1,000 years from now, humans will still want to know where they came from. They'll still do a DNA test to find out they're 100% human. And they've been carrying their home inside of them all along. Motherland, Ukrainian artists reflect on the notion of homeland, is at Stadtmuseum Berlin until September 10th. You've been listening to Artipus, Art You Can Hear. Intro and outro tracks by Hot Legs. Music in this track is by Lithuanian composer Julius Kmitas. We'll be back in about a month with another episode of Artipus. It's good to be back, but these shows take about 100 hours to produce. If you want to support Artipus and make sure it never goes away again, consider a monthly subscription. You can find subscription options and benefits on our Facebook page. Just search for Artipus. A-R-T-I-P-O-E-U-S. See you soon.